today's read, Asada, an autobiography written by Asada Shakur, Chapter 7. Kamal and I were acquitted in the bank robbery trial in the Southern District of New York on January 28, 1973, and on the following day, I was returned to New Jersey. When I arrived at the Morristown Jail, there was a clump of reporters and photographers standing around. Morristown looked just like small town USA. The jail was an ugly building attached to the courthouse. There were a few other women in the jail and I was kept away from them. The only time I saw them was when I was being taken to or from my cell. They all appeared to be white, although I found out later that one was black. The guards were all women, as old as the hills, and they had been working at the jail for an eternity. There was a television and a radio in the cell, and it had been so long since I had been able to watch the news on television or listen to a static-free radio station that I went crazy, and I had turned into a crochet fiend. My poor mother was the unfortunate recipient of my early creations brave, devoted person that she was. She thought they were pure genius. We learned there were few, if any, black jurors on the panel for the new trial. The news was depressing. The panel was selected from the voting rolls, and since candidates running for office seldom represent the interests of black and poor people, blacks and the poor don't vote. But failing to vote means they don't sit on juries. Any chance that we would receive something even remotely resembling a fair trial was slim. We decided to try to have the trial removed to federal court. The chance of the feds taking over was slim, but it was worth a try. If the trial was held in the federal court in Newark, at least we'd be assured of a few more black jurors on the jury panel. There were countless joint legal meetings, countless strategy sessions, and countless court appearances. My first look at the Morris County jury panel flung me into a terrible depression. There were only two or three black jurors on each panel, and they looked like extras in a soap opera. As a matter of fact, the whole jury panel looked like escapees from a soap opera. They dressed differently and had a whole different air about them than New York people. Morristown was supposed to be one of the 10 richest counties in the country. And looking at these people, I believed it. I could just see trying to explain to them what poor black people in big cities go through. How could they understand someone becoming a black revolutionary? They had so little to revolt against. They had bought the American dream lock, stock, and barrel and seemed unaware that for the majority of black and third world people, the American dream is the American nightmare. Evelyn and I had resolved our differences and she was back on the case. She Ray Brown and Charles McKinney, Sunjata's lawyer, worked hard on the motion to remove the trial to federal court. But, 
After a hearing, the federal judge remanded the case back to the state court. He hadn't even listened to our arguments. So we were right back where we had started, picking a jury in Morris County. Jury selection droned on tediously. Sunjata and I kept ourselves from falling asleep or from having nervous breakdowns by laughing and talking. Just seeing Sunjata every day was such a comfort to me. We made up all kinds of little games and jokes, especially guessing the answers jurors would give to the trial judge's questions. We got to be pretty good at it. We could look at a person and pretty much know what he was going to say. Some glared at us hatefully while they waited to be called, as if they couldn't wait to give their opinions that we were guilty. They were so sure of exactly what happened. They recited detail after detail from newspapers and TV. Where were you hiding that night on the turnpike? I wanted to scream at them. I didn't see you. Others gave us crooked smiles in the hope that we would think they sympathized with us and believe them on the jury, but there was not one bigot in the courtroom. None of them said they had any prejudice against black people. Do you have any black friends? The judge asked. Of course. But when asked if they had ever invited a black person to their homes or been to the home of a black person, the answer was invariably no. On one panel, the judge asked everybody if they had ever called a black person a nigger. They all said no except for one woman who said, well, when I was a child, we used to say eeny, meeny, Miney Mo, catch a nigga by the toe. After that, a whole bunch of them said the same thing. Sometimes their answers were so phony they were a joke. Except the joke was on us. One day, a man being questioned told the judge what he had read about the case in newspapers and what he had heard on radio and TV. He tried to make it seem that he had just incidentally come across the news stories and that he had not really followed the case or paid much attention to it. Further, he denied having been affected by any of it. Have you ever read a book called Target Blue? Only a day or two before, the defense team had asked that that question be included in the voir dire. Robert Daly, who at one time was the public relations and publicity director for the New York City Police Department, had written the book Target Blue. An excerpt from the book was coincidentally printed in New York magazines on almost the exact day our trial was to begin. One or two chapters were about the Black Liberation Army. The book was a collection of sensationalism, groundless accusations, and outright lies. The few facts that were in those two chapters were distorted beyond recognition. I was referred to by name. Daly implied that I had been responsible for the deaths of numerous policemen. 
He called me the soul of the Black Liberation Army, the mother hen that kept them fighting and kept them moving. According to the book, I had also robbed numerous banks and blown up a police car with a hand grenade during a police chase. Have you ever heard, have you ever read Target Blue, the judge asked. Uh, yes. Immediately, the defense team submitted requests to the judge that additional questions be asked. When did you read this book? As a matter of fact, I'm reading it now. Not only had he been reading the book, but he had it upstairs in the jury room. Although the defense team asked for an investigation, the judge refused. It was obvious the man had brought the book to court to show to the other jurors and that they had discussed it. After a lot of arguments made by our lawyers, the judge agreed to dismiss that juror and others in the panel with whom he had been close. One day, I was informed that the Nazi party was demonstrating outside the court, marching up and down, complete with swastikas, brown uniforms, and helmets. They carried white power, save our police, and death death penalty placards. Other signs were printed with racist statements. Rumors spread that a cross had been burned in front of the home of one of our supporters. At the end of the day, the Nazis almost got into a fight with some of the few black residents in Morristown. A lot of people don't know it, but they've got more Nazis and Ku Klux Klan in Jersey than a little bit. Some of my friends call it Up South. Lou Myers, who was later one of my lawyers on this case, is from Mississippi. One day, in all earnestness, he told me he would rather try a case in Mississippi any day than try one in New Jersey. I couldn't understand it. I was growing weaker and weaker. My energy seemed to have gone down the drain. All I wanted to do was sleep. I chided myself for trying to escape from reality instead of facing it. I had seen women in jail sleep their whole time away. I was afraid that was happening to me. I was so easily upset and reacted to everything in an exaggerated manner. My nerves were terrible. Every little thing affected me. All I did all day when there was no court was sleep, eat, watch television, and listen to the radio. I was eating like food was going out of style. This also convinced me my nerves were going bad. I have seen people in prison gain 20 30, 40, 50 pounds, eating out of nerves and boredom. It gets to the point when all you have to look forward to is the meals. And that in itself is pitiful because anyone who has ever been in prison knows how terrible the food is. Yet, I was gulping that stuff down just like it was mom's home cooking. It wasn't until I sat down one day to do my exercises that I really suspected what could be wrong. I could barely get through 10 sit-ups. Everything added up. 
I didn't dare hope, but at the same time, down deep inside, I knew, as sure as I knew my own name, I knew that I was pregnant. But what was I to do next? I knew I had to see the doctor, but what in the world was I going to say? I had been in prison for eight months, and it would really be weird to say, hey, I think I'm pregnant. I wanted to know for sure whether I was or not, but if I wasn't, I didn't want the doctor to know my business, because if I was, it would be only a matter of time before the whole world would know. First thing the next morning, I saw the prison doctor. I told him all my symptoms, drop, dropping hint after hint. He told me there was nothing to worry about, that I was just constipated. As time wore on, it became harder and harder to wake up in the morning. When the guards came to wake me for court, I would simply roll over and continue sleeping. They did everything to get me out of bed. They called, they threatened, they banged on the bars and anything else they could think of. Just don't come in the cell, I would tell them, feeling evil as the day is long. You come in here and you put your hands on me and I'm gonna take your head right off your shoulders. They must have known I meant it because they kept their distance until I was awake. I didn't care what they thought or said as long as they didn't put their hands on me. I wanted them to leave me alone. All I wanted to do was sleep. I walked into court whenever I got up, no matter what time it was. The judge would go on and on about my lateness and admonish my lawyers for not having me in court on time, but it was hopeless. I didn't care what the judge said what the guard said or what anybody said, all I wanted to do was sleep. I told Sunjata and one or two of the lawyers that I thought I was pregnant. They looked at me blankly puzzled as if I had an overactive imagination. Each day I felt more and more weird. I felt fragile and sick. I went back to the prison doctor, prison doctor, dropping more and more hints. I repeated my symptoms Queasy stomach, stomach getting bigger, sick in the mornings, sleep all the time, etc. But he still didn't get the message and kept telling me this stuff about an intestinal disorder. I didn't know what to do next. One day, I woke up and could hardly move. I was sick as a dog and dizzy to boot. I got up for a minute, then sank back down on the cot, holding onto it for dear life. They called the prison doctor. I repeated the symptoms again, and this time he ordered some tests. He asked for a urine specimen. I was sure he had sent for a pregnancy test. I waited a few days and heard nothing. Then the nurse came and asked me for more urine. I was certain this meant the pregnancy test was positive, and they were retesting just to be sure. I gave her the urine sample. I gave her the urine sample and waited. When the doctor called me to his office, I knew he was going to tell me I was pregnant. Instead, he was smug and acted really on the stupid side. He kept making snide little remarks and I could tell he was trying to make fun of me. I asked him what was wrong with me and he repeated the same old stuff about a bowel disorder. Then he asked me some questions about my sex life. Ask your mama about her sex life, I said, and went out of his office, slamming the door. Later that day, 
Ray Brown and Evelyn came to see me. Ray was in a jovial mood, laughing his head off. Well, you've really done it this time. I don't know what we're going to do with you. His honor is going to give you a strong reprimand for getting pregnant during his trial. You mean I'm really pregnant? It was in the doctor's report to the judge, didn't you know? No, I told him. I was just in that slimy bastard's office this morning, and he told me that I had something wrong with my intestines. He's pulling your leg, Ray said. They did two or three pregnancy tests on you, and they all came back positive. You're pregnant, all right. I can't believe it. Evelyn was in a state of shock. It's something, she said. Then she looked into space for a long time. It's something. Judge Bachman's having a fit, Ray said. I hear the FBI is going to conduct an investigation to determine how you got pregnant. Well, they better not try to come around me asking no questions, I told them. I'll tell them that this baby was sent by the black creator to liberate black people. I'll tell them that this baby is the new black messiah conceived in a holy way, come to lead our people to freedom and justice and to create a new black nation. Sunjata and McKinney had joined us. Sunjata was elated. He couldn't get over it. He sat there grinning and slapping his knee. I think it's beautiful, he kept saying. I think it's absolutely beautiful. Everyone was in a jubilant mood. I was glad I hadn't known how they would react. It's amazing, Evelyn said. Out of all this misery, a new life is conceived. I was caught up in the mood, but I couldn't wait to get off alone in my cell to think about this. What had seemed like a remote dream was coming true. A baby. My mind was jumping and dancing. I spent the next few days in a virtual daze, a joyous daze. A person was inside of me, someone who was going to grow up to walk and talk, to love and laugh. To me, it was the miracle of all miracles and deeply spiritual. The odds against this baby being conceived were so great, it boggled my mind. And yet, It was happening. It seemed so right, so beautiful, in surroundings that were so ugly. I was filled with emotion. Already, I was deeply in love with this child. Already, I talked to it and worried about it and wondered how it was feeling and what it was thinking. I would lie in my cell, wondering about his or her life, wondering what kind of life it would have what kind of people it would love, what kind of values it would have, and what it would think of all the madness that would surround it. Sometimes I felt so helplessly protective, wondering when my baby would be called nigger for the first time, wondering when the full horror and degradation of being black in America would descend on my baby. How many wolves hid behind the bushes to eat 
my child. But there were so many happy things that I thought about too. I wondered when would be the first time my child would sit down and seriously appreciate the glory of a sunset and marvel at the wonders of nature. Or when he or she would smack lips and lick fingers over a sweet potato pie or kiss strawberries and drink lemonade. It has always intrigued me how the world can be so beautiful and so ugly at the same time. I wanted with all my being for my baby to experience the many types and sides of love and friendship and to know and understand selflessness and generosity, struggle and sacrifice, honesty, courage, and so many of the sentiments that have given me strength and have made my life worth living. In these days, I was in such a state of sensitivity and thought that I barely noticed what was going on around me. The next time my mother came to see me, my sister was with her. I was so happy to see them both. When I say see, it is something of an overstatement because in Morristown Jail, there are little windows that you and your visitors peek through and there are little holes through which you are supposed to talk, but to make yourself heard, you are obliged to shout. Honey, you look pale, my mother shouted. Mommy, I'm pregnant. What is it, honey? I'm pregnant, mommy. My mother smiled blandly. I repeated myself and she began to laugh. How many months are you? No, seriously, mommy, I'm pregnant. Well, so am I, my mother said, this time laughing heartily. I think it was my hysterectomy that caused it. (laughs) No, mommy, I pleaded. You don't understand. I'm pregnant. I'm not joking. Who's joking, honey? Pregnancy is a serious matter, she said, trying to keep a straight face, especially when the baby is born under immaculate conception and God is the father. She and my sister were having a giggling fit. What are you going to name the baby, my sister added. Jesus, they just carried on. The more I insisted I was pregnant, the more they laughed and cracked jokes. But finally, my mother stopped laughing. Are you really pregnant? I told her that it happened in the court and that Kamal was the father. How do you feel? Actually, kind of funny, I told her. I can barely move and I'm just so tired. In the visiting room, on the prisoner's side, there were no chairs. So you had to stand up and talk. I was so tired. I just couldn't stand any longer. I sat down on the floor leaning on the wall behind me so that they could see me. I couldn't see them, but we shouted to each other until the visit was over. I went up to my cell after the visit ended and immediately fell out. My mother went to the warden to complain about their refusal to provide chairs. The next day, Evelyn came to see me. Your mother called me last night all the way from Morristown as soon as she left you. She was worried to death that with all you've been through, you'd finally been driven crazy. I told her not to worry, that you are, in fact, pregnant. I think she's in a state of shock. So is your sister. It's all over the papers. I brought them for you. I couldn't believe it. Sure enough, there were the articles. The one in the New York Daily News, I remember, was especially sordid. All of the papers speculated about who the father was and how I had managed to become pregnant in jail. 
One of them hinted that a prison guard was the father. I'm sick, auntie. I feel awful. Well, that's what happens when you're pregnant. You get morning sickness and all sorts of other strange ailments. It's only normal. Maybe you're right, but I'm having these pains down here, I told her, pointing to where the pains were, and I can barely stand up. She told me to go see the doctor, and I told her how the doctor had acted. Well, go see him anyway, and have him examine you thoroughly. Meanwhile, I'll try to have you seen by a private gynecologist as soon as possible. I'll probably have to go to court. She promised that she would do all that she could to get an outside doctor, and I went upstairs to see that jail doctor. Why did you lie to me and tell me all that junk about a bowel disorder? Was the first thing I asked him. Well, you lied. I just figured I'd get back at you. Anyway, you found out like I knew you would. I told him about my pains and he examined me. What's wrong? I asked anxiously. There's a chance you're threatening to abort. What? I practically screamed. There's a chance that you're going to abort. I don't want no abortion, I cried out. It's probably the best course you could take now, and I'd recommend it, but that's not what I was talking about. I said that there was a chance you could spontaneously abort, have a miscarriage. Oh no, I moaned. What are you going to do? Relax. It's probably nothing serious. It's nothing much to worry about. What do you mean nothing much to worry about? I want this baby. Well, I can't force you to do anything, but my advice is to have an abortion. It will be better for you and for everyone else. I don't want anybody's abortion. But what are you going to do about this miscarriage thing? Isn't there something you can give me to keep me from having a miscarriage? Isn't there something that I can take to make sure I don't lose this baby? No, there's nothing I can do now. We have to wait and see what happens. What do you mean, wait and see what happens? If I have a miscarriage, then it will be too late. Can't you call a gynecologist? No, there's nothing I can do right now. You mean there's nothing you will do right now, don't you? Take it any way you want to. Won't you at least call a gynecologist in to see me? You're not a specialist in this area. I don't need you to tell me what my specialties are, he said angrily. It would be best for everybody concerned if you have an abortion, no matter which way you have it. Just who is everybody concerned? Don't you worry about it. My advice to you is that you should go to your cell and lie down. Just lie down and rest your mind. Just lie down and stay off your feet. And if you go to the bathroom and see a lump in the toilet, don't flush it. It's your baby. I raced out of his office, and when I got to my cell, I lay on the cot crying. I was worried to death. As far as I could see, they were out to kill my baby. I couldn't lose this baby. Now, not now. It was meant to be. This baby was our hope, our hope for the future. I tried to calm myself. I didn't want the baby to feel my anguish. Finally, I fell asleep.
The next morning, I waited anxiously for Evelyn and Ray Brown. Ray came first. I told him what had happened. Please, I begged. Get a doctor we can trust to see me today. I'll try to get one as soon as I can, Ray assured me. I'll have to make some phone calls, and then I've got to talk to the judge. He's having a fit, you know. He wants to resume the trial today. Don't worry. Everything is going to be all right. Ray and Evelyn came back in about an hour. Don't worry, they told me. The trial has been postponed until there is a report from our doctor. The judge has permitted you to be examined by your own gynecologist. And he's coming this afternoon, so cheer up. They did their best to take my mind off everything and to make me feel better. That day, I felt worse than ever before. Is the doctor black? No, he's a cool Klux Klan doctor, Ray Brown joked. I felt like my insides were going to drop out on the floor at any minute. Ray went outside to meet the doctor and came back followed by a tall, brown-skinned man. The man sure as hell didn't look like no doctor. He looked like Mr. Superfly himself. He had on a long fur coat, a jumpsuit, and platform shoes, but when I looked into his face, I was reassured. He was kind and very self-assured. He was gentle when he examined me and I was truly grateful. He asked a whole lot of questions in a careful, painstaking manner. I was really impressed. Would you tell me your name again, I asked him, ashamed that I had forgotten it. Sure, that's an easy order. Ernest Wyman Garrett. He practiced in Newark and there was an air of Newark about him. I liked him instantly. He was one of those rare breed of black professionals who haven't lost contact with the masses of black people. He didn't have one trace of the affected bougie speech and mannerisms that are so popular among the black middle class. I waited nervously for the verdict. There's no doubt about it. You're pregnant, but I found blood in the vaginal canal, which can be a sign that something is wrong. There's a possibility that you are threatening to abort. This doesn't mean that you're going to have a miscarriage. The chances are good that you won't. The odds and medical statistics statistics, are in your favor. He explained the different possibilities and the treatment he was prescribing. I asked a million questions and when he left, felt a whole lot better just knowing there was someone I could trust taking care of me and the baby. The days that followed are blurry in my mind. Most of the time I slept. The warden and the sheriff and the powers that were didn't like the idea of my having my own doctor, though. In their minds, the butcher, jailhouse, quackhouse doctor was good enough for me, and the fact that Dr. Garrett was black infuriated them. They refused to let him examine me unless a white doctor hired by the state was present. And for the report to the judge, the white doctor had to examine me. Fortunately, he agreed with my doctor's findings. There was a lot of activity going on around me that I didn't understand. I was too out of it to try. I could see, though, that Evelyn and Ray were worried I wanted to help them to get to the bottom of what was happening, but 
I just didn't have the energy. About two days after his first visit, Dr. Garrett came to visit me. When he finished examining me, he said, Asada, I don't want to worry you, but I think you should be hospitalized. It's nothing serious, strictly a precautionary measure. You're in no condition to proceed with a trial. You need a few weeks of complete bed rest. There is a possibility the judge will try to push you into that trial right away without regard for your medical condition. Asada, there is no way we are going to let that happen. I am prepared to fight all the way for your right as a human being to receive decent medical care and for your baby to be born healthy. I'm doing the same for you as I would for any other patient. You should be hospitalized. There isn't a responsible doctor in the world who wouldn't agree with that opinion. And I'm prepared to testify in any court that to deny you proper medical care would be tantamount to committing murder. I will be going in a very short time to give a medical report about your condition to the judge. I will do my best to convince him of the seriousness of this matter. I think he'll listen to reason. I'm sure the judge will go along with the findings of two board-certified gynecologists, but if worse comes to worst and the judge denies our motion, I will see to it personally that this jail and the courtroom are surrounded by the right-to-life people by tomorrow morning. I was too shot out to say much more than thank you. I was scared to death for my baby, but I knew that everything that could be done was being done, and that was a load off my mind. I got dressed and waited for them to come and take me to court. I wanted to hear what was going on. When they didn't come for me, I became worried. What was going on? Why weren't they bringing me to court? Why were they taking so long? What were they going to do? Were they going to try to make me go to trial like this? What were they planning to do? Evelyn and Ray came in, strutting and beaming. I knew everything was going to be all right. What happened? Why didn't they bring me to court? You are too sick to go to court, Evelyn laughed. Haven't you heard that they don't let pregnant women into court? They figure it's a disease and are afraid everybody will catch it. We felt it was much better for you not to be moved. It went fine. They'll be taking you to a hospital as soon as they can make the arrangements. Dr. Garrett did a great job. After that speech, there was no way the judge was going to force you to go to trial in your condition. The trial has been severed, and Sunjata will go on with the trial alone. What? I exclaimed. But we had agreed that we would be tried together. Why can't they wait until I'm better? Now, Asada, you know they're not going to wait. You know they're not going to wait for you to have your baby to try Sunjata. They claim that being here in Morristown is costing them a fortune. It will be cheaper to try us together, I said. Well, can't I at least see Sunjata and say goodbye to him? We'll try, they said, but we doubt if there will be time or if the sheriff will consent to it. I'm going to miss Sunjata. Yes, we know. Later, they put me on a stretcher and wheeled me into an, into an ambulance. 
Don't worry, I told the baby. You're going to be all right. Love. Love is contraband in hell. Because love is an acid that eats away bars. But you... Me and tomorrow hold hands and make vows that struggle will multiply. The hacksaw has two blades. The shotgun has two barrels. We are pregnant with freedom. We are a conspiracy.